0: my the to pastor our church and if you're new with us awesome we'd love to connect with you soon but so parents i don't know if you do this or not but you have 936 weeks between the time that you bring your baby home from a hospital unless you had the baby in your house and that's a different story until they graduate high school so 936 weeks there's 936 marbles right in here One of the ways that we really kind of practice this and just make every week intentional is every Sunday night, we take a marble out. And then that jar gets empty. So I took my eighth grade students this week and I said, this is what you guys have left in high school until you're out. Here's all your weeks. Don't screw it up, right? Um, (laughs) And it's one of those visual ways that we can do this. Parents, out of all the parents in the world that your kids could have parents do, God ordained God saw that you should be the parents for your child. And so, don't waste it either. So, uh, I had a friend of mine who just, they just had a baby, uh, just Friday. So I told him, 936 weeks, here you go. And today we can celebrate Buston, who is, his jar is gone, is empty, right? Because he just graduated Friday. So, those 936 weeks. Some of them go fast, some of them go a little lower than normal, uh, but here's the deal the psalmist says this, that children are like arrows in a quiver the point of an arrow is not to sit in the quiver, the point of the arrow is not to sit into the bow either but it's to be launched so lesson, we're going to celebrate what your next is so we're going to have you come up, I've got a gift for you as well um, and we're going to pray over him because I believe he has some ama- God has amazing things in store for a lesson do um, you mind telling us a little bit of what's next for you? Oh, yeah, that. Okay. So where are you going? What you plan on doing and all that? Okay, so, I'm Weston. I graduated on Friday from Cayumet High School. Um, so, kind of, you know, this summer just working, hanging out with my friends, making memories, and then... In the fall, going to Ball State, majoring in graphic graphic arts management and all that. So that's pretty cool. And yeah. Is that code cool for tattoo artists? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily. I was hoping to get some new tattoos, that's why. We don't get tattoos. So, graphic arts, going to Ball State. Do uh, yes. you have some family down there? Like sister yeah, down there. Sisters down there. But other than that, any other connections? Um, you know, my friends. My friends are going to other schools, but you know, we're all staying in Indiana. We're all staying close. Mm-hmm. So, hopefully, you know, keep those connections and all. Yeah. All right. Well, awesome. Well, we're excited to see what God does for you. So, we're here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna ask, we're just praising. So wherever you're sitting, just reach your hands forward. All us in prayer, and we'll go from there. So, Weston, thanks. Our God. God, thanks for this day for who you are. God, we thank you for Weston in His life. You, God. And God, we pray that whatever next is that where he is will be there. That, God, who he becomes in this season is going to be crucial. Yeah. And that while jobs may change and the field may change and the economy may change, God, you're still the same. Mm-hmm. And you've called and you've designed and you've ordained Weston to be someone. So, God, we pray that he'll, be, he'll become that man that you've called for to be. Yes. God, we thank you that he graduated high school, that he celebrated and he made it all the way through high school, God. And his wrestling career, his football career, and all that other fun stuff. God, would you allow him to make some sweet memories of this summer? And that he would just have some great time with his friends. But as he steps into what's, what's next for him in this chapter, God, would you be with him? Will, those, will he stay in step with you in the spirit? And would you guide him and direct him? as you launch him into what is next, so he can accomplish what you have in store for him to advance your kingdom in this earth through him. We love you, God, Continue. to we pray this. Amen. 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 There you go. we got to get for you as well. Thanks. All right. All right, for those of you who are new or visiting with us this morning, if you want to connect with us, you can text the word here to 219-233-2311, or you can find us in the back of the One Cup Cafe after the service for any questions you may have and to get a gift that we have for you guys. And then lastly, I just want to thank you guys for giving to the Vision and Mission of Rethink Church. Um, we couldn't do what we do here without um, your generosity. And so if you do want to give, you can either give online at rethinkchurch.cc or you can give in the black, back at the black box. Uh, Thank you for joining us this morning, and we hope you enjoy the service. You can get up and get the back, or some of our team will bring you uh, communion from there. Um, but we'll celebrate that together later on here in a little bit. So, today we're going to continue in Ephesians, and I don't know about you, but have you ever watched or witnessed somebody disinterpret scripture, and you're like, like... So, I was doing some studying, because that was what I do. Um, but there's a famous sculpture, and is the guy is Michelangelo, an Italian artist, He's made this sculpture of Moses. Moses at the time of this sculpture is 80 years old. I just want you to notice how ripped Moses looked at 80 years old in this picture. Um, but I was studying this and I was like, man, that's a 80 year old right? Like, <laughs> I don't look anything like that. The other, the odd part about this is Michael Angel was reading, and his priest was reading from what we call the Vulgate. The Vulgate is this translation that went from Hebrew to Latin. And there's some weird translation terms that came into this place, um, but in this, in the in the context of these or sorry, Exodus chapter 30, 34 was that uh, Moses goes up to the mountain, he's up, he spends the time with God, and then as he comes down from the mountain, Aaron and his like attendants were like, "Whoa, dude, you're like glowing here! Like, uh, what's going on here?" And so when they um, <clears throat> when he recognized that, they put a veil around him. The author of Hebrews tells us that the the veil itself was meant because uh, all of a sudden the, the glory, the Shekinah glory started to dim in Moses, and they didn't want him to think that, like they didn't want the Israelite population to think, oh, it's dimming. Well, the the, the translation got a little strange, um, so that instead of a, a, the glory or the, the veil, the Vulgate translates it that, they, that Moses had horns. So, Michelangelo, Okay, this um, in this, what you'll see is the horns are right there. So, here's the deal. When it comes to understanding Scripture, it's not just having the knowledge base, but it's also to apply it. Here's Michael Angel. His intention was not to dishonor the Scriptures, was it? No. His, his intention is to make Moses look like a ripped 80-year-old, <laughs> but also Samuel with the Ten Commandments and saying, this is like, he's leading out of strength, Right? but he completely misunderstands it. Then he also misinterprets it, and then he misapplies it. We see this over and over and over again. The point of scripture reading is not just to have knowledge base, it's not just to interpret it, but it's also that we should apply it. And it does not have to be in you making a sculpture. I don't know if any of you are sculptors or not, but I'm not. So, but here's what I have learned: That if I understand the scriptures, and I interpret it correctly, and I apply it correctly, all of a sudden I start building these small little habits. That when it comes to forgiving others, I can forgive. When it comes to letting offenses go, I've applied scripture enough that I'm like, okay, I don't have to pick up offenses. I can let those things go. Um, this week here in Maryville, we're going to pause and just pray for a moment. This week in Maryville, something tragic happened. And I just want us to understand that, like, the tragedy happened, we need to acknowledge it. But how we move forward as a community needs to be grounded in scripture. And it grounded in Christ-like examples and how we move forward. And as a community, we cannot just ignore the tragedy that literally just happened half a mile away from us at Luke, where one person lost his life, one young man that we know lost his life, and other people's lives are completely changed because of the incident that happened in those moments. So we're going to pause, we're going to pray, and then we'll just keep going into this. God, we come before you, and we acknowledge that the events on, of this week and Wednesday were not of your plan. That somehow evil ran rampant in our community. Whether it was sinful nature, whether it was the actual power of evil, either way, it was not of your kingdom. And so, God, we pray against all of that. And we step into the chaos, yes, God. we step into the evil. Not our own power, but because you have commissioned us to go. You said, "Go make disciples. Yeah. Go advance my kingdom." So, God, we're standing in front of you, and as your ambassadors, we're going to step into this community. And I hope that we do this with a biblical, scriptural, Christ-like example. Yes, sir. That we're going to understand Scripture correctly. We're going to interpret Scripture correctly. And we're going to apply Scripture correctly, guys. And God, would you allow your kingdom to advance? And God, in this scenario where lives are completely changed in a matter of moments, where a son is no longer in that house with his mom, God, would you wrap her up with your grace and with your comfort? God, would you bring grace where grace is needed and conviction where conviction is needed? God, you are the God of second chances and of third chances and of 120th chances. So God, I pray that the story that you will write from here will bring glory and honor to you. Would you soften hearts? We open eyes and open ears for people to step in and say, okay, God, this was my life and this was a decision, but I'm going to step into your path and follow you. Out of this. God, would Your community advance in this in this community wherever we go as Your people? Yes. We love You. Can you pray this? Amen. Amen. So another way that I see people misinterpreting Scripture um, is claiming things that are scriptural. Number one, uh, or they just take things out of the context of Scripture and then they say that it's theirs. Uh, I was having a conversation with one of my friends who's a pastor and he was talking about his binding and loosing. I don't know if you've heard this term in scripted church language. Um, but he was talking about things that he was binding and he was talking about it in the context of not allowing, prohibitively. Like, and then he was talking about loosing and he was saying that it's allowable. And I was like, have you done any contextual understanding of this? Like scriptural contextual. And he was like, I don't need to. It's, it's all right there in the language. And I was like, but it's not. Here's the deal. Um, so, in the rabbinic language, where Jesus is a rabbi in the first century time frame, uh, he talks about this in Matthew 16, he talks about this in Matthew 18. You see this. You see the disciples applying this in the, in the Council of Acts, where they're like, we don't know what to do with Gentile Christians, meaning non-Jewish Christians. So they come together, and they made a decision of what to bind and what to loose. And what we have to come, like, we exist because of their decisions. Does that make sense? Yeah. Unless you're Jewish. And if you are, awesome. Uh, but I'm not. So, um, But in the rabbinic language, it's an agricultural language. So when they bind something, they're allowing something in their language. And they're understanding. When they loose something, they're, they're not allowing it in their context. But in our context, in the American church world, what's the language that usually gets used? I bind this in your life. You're not allowed to do this. This evil has no, like, whoa, whoa. Not that, like, Christianity is witchcraft. You have to get it all right. Like, the word's right, because if we do, we're all screwed, right? But, like, if you're going to say, I, in my authority, I bind this, you better know what you're saying. And if you're going to loose something, well, the idea of loosing is, like, kind of like the separating the wheat and the chaff. They're loosing the chaff. They're letting it, like, go away. Just throwing it up in the air and letting it loosing into the air. Um, so, loosing and binding are there. And you see this misinterpretation over and over and over again. Usually, in the late 90s are on TV evangelist But, um, <laughs> just, there's my statement. So, and I'll say, go it. But, but, um, but in this conversation, I've had this with people. like, do you need to understand this? Now, when, when it comes to scripture contextual, a lot of people say, well, I'm not a pastor, so I can't do it. Yeah, you can. Here's the deal you and I have more resources than the early church ever had. So what are we doing with them? You have access, you have information, you have all this other stuff. Like, if we're gonna spend hours and hours and hours on our phones, we might as well use them for good, good things, right? Mm-hmm. If you're gonna watch TV, you play video games and all that, how about you take a fraction of that and you inter- like you, you understand and you start, start studying scripture. There's seven lines of context, which I'm gonna get into them all today. But part of it is, knowing history, know, context, what's actually going on in this. So when we look at the book of Ephesians, or the letter of Ephesians, I want us to have an understanding of it. Is, is Ephesus an American city? No, right? What, like Here's the deal. When we when we reading scriptures, we have to understand where it's at. It's in modern-day Turkey, and he's not writing it in 21st century context. He's writing it in 1st century, 2nd century language, right? And so... Paul is writing this because he wants to deal with some, some other stuff that is there. So understanding that is crucial. The other part of this that we need to understand is that 80% of the Roman population that made up the Roman Empire lived under the poverty line. Think about that. 80% of the population that made up an empire that spanned from England to like parts of India lived under the poverty line. So here's what that means: to become a senator. I mean, I'm going to use the term here, and it just means dollar, basically. Um, but uh, to be a senator, you needed one million sesterces, which is like their dollar. To be an equestrian was 400,000 sesterces, which basically, going because think about the equestrian, somebody who's going to breed horses, take care of horses, sell horses. We have car lots, we have car manufacturers, it's the same concept, because that's how you get around in the ancient world. The average day wage was four. Think about like this. Every 80% of the people were living off of four dollars or less a day. But meanwhile, you have this massive gap between four and four hundred thousand to a million, right? And so the con- the, con- the question has has to become: How do the senators know what the people want? Because in, in the Roman world, in the Roman context, being poor meant that you were less human. We would never do that in America, right? Like we would never say here. Less valuable because of your money, and your value, and your worth, and your base count. But in the Roman Empire, they did. The other part of it was there's a massive difference between rural poor, meaning you're living in a country, you're just a farmer, you're doing whatever, and being urban poor. Ephesus is the second largest city in the Roman Empire, Vermont, predominantly made up of urban sorry urban poor people who are living in this Roman Ephesus were very similar in sense. Remember we talked about that to, to, to Rome they wanted to spread the civilization. So they took the concepts of Rome, what made up Rome, we talked about these last week, the bathhouses, the, the, temp, sorry, the, the temples for these, the fountains, and then eventually the theater. They took these places and then they spread them all throughout the cities. And then that's how they transformed the culture. Well, for them in, in Ephesus, they, they had this concept of like population density as well. Rome had it as well. Rome was insanely dense when it came to population. In New York City in 1996 there were 36 persons per square acre. Chicago at that same time frame was 21 persons per square acre. San Francisco was 23 at that time. Rome had one million people. And their their square acreage were two to three hundred people per square acre. That's a lot of people a lot of food too. My well, let's just call it what it is, right? So, most of the poor people in Rome lived in these things called insulars. Insulars were kind of like an apartment building. Um, but if you were the wealthiest of the poor, you lived on the bottom, because you had sewage, because you want that, right? Um, you also had a stove, like a fireplace. All the other floors had just open Air, like an open fire pit, basically. Which fire, wind structures don't really go well, right? <clears throat> so, a ton of fires happen all the, way, all the time in the Roman insulars. Um, and you would just have, a basically, a pot to go to the bathroom in. And you were supposed to go down to the sewer and dump it in the sewer, but they didn't, they just threw it out the, the window. Uh, create, or sorry, Roman uh, authors would talk about, like, if you're walking by an insular, make sure you don't get, get it in, uh, Intercepted by the pot. Meaning what was being dumped out, right? Like think about like he's trying to like talk through like tour guys, right? Like if you're gonna visit Rome, make sure you identify these things and don't go walking by them in the morning. Because if you do, yeah, it's gonna be gross, right? So that's the culture that they're living in. And they have all these and it's built like like think about the just population density and how you need a little bit of space to, to breathe, right? Uh, but 80% of the people. This is the church. This is the Roman population. And they were like poor people were seen as less than human. Wealthier people were seen as more of human. And each generation, people got more wealthy, meaning that they would just lay around and do more leisure activities. And the more that that happened, the more human you became. But if you had to do a lot more work, then the less human you became. That was their concept. And it was encouraged and accepted, and really, really encouraged in some places to ignore the poor, to so, like not acknowledge their existence. Like this was like if you wanted to go through the, how to become a senator, train that was part of that process. Um, and, their, and their educators, their teachers would let like inform them, just ignore it, just yeah. let it go. And so you have this reality. And then here comes this Jewish rabbi in the eastern part of the, the Roman Empire, in the northern part of Galilee. And he accepts and shows and like dignifies people, no matter what their poverty level or wealth level was. He shows value, dignity, and worth, and he embraces people. People that should have been ignored, he touches them. Like I was just reading this morning, where he was in the Decapolis, the northern part of, the, of Israel. And this guy was mute and sorry, deaf and he like put his fingers in his ears. He didn't just wave a magic wand, he actually physically touched the man. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then he's modeling for his disciples. This is how we live. This is what it looks like to actually live this out. We talked about this last week that, that Bethshean was the most Roman city in all of the Decapolis. And Jesus would have taken his disciples and said, this is how we interact with the city. This is how you go down to the fountain. This is what you do. Like he would have shown them how to do this. And then he sends them out, the disciples out, to go do this. And what do they do? They go do it. It's amazing. They follow the rabbi's example. They don't just be like, hmm, hey, that's a good thing to think about. They interpret the scripture and they apply the scripture. And they have this great understanding. And then this guy named Paul writes in several letters, and one of the letters he writes in Galatians chapter two, he says this. That they, they, he's talking about the Council and Acts. And he says this, that the Council of Acts also added this, that they should remember the poor. And I have every effort to do that, he said. The ancient church was so great at remembering the poor and taking care of the poor that when the Roman emperor, 4th, 4th century, uh, Julian is his name, he tries to reinstitute, reinstitute uh, Caesar worship, basically meaning like, worship me because I'm your leader type thing. Whole different you know. I can't even get into that, like how messed up you have to be to do this. But he would hire priests to go throughout all the Roman Empire. And all the priests came back and said, hey, our tactics aren't working. Meaning this that they would, like, as a politician, he would show up with this massive parade and he would hand up money, he would hand up bread, he would hand up things. And they're like, they don't need our money or bread anymore. And here's why he goes, these group of Christians are taken care of, that they have no need of our generosity. And Julian the Emperor was like, seriously, guys, you got this group of Christians are so generous that I can't even get people to like worship me because I'm handing them money. Not that a politician would ever do that to, her. like <laughs> anything like that, right? Like no, nothing's going to be sun, By the way, I just want to point that out. So, but um, like, you have this reality, and here's here's like Julian is like, man, we can't we can't even get them to like worship me even if we give them money and free money and free bread. And so here they are, and so if you read the scriptures, you can have this misunderstanding of saying that Jesus wants us to shun wealth, though, too. That you should, that everybody should sell everything you have and give them, like, follow, follow the Lord. Well, that was true for one person. Yeah. And not necessarily for all of us. And here's the deal. When it comes to scripture, this is a harsh reality. This took me a long time to, to understand. That scripture, all scripture is written for us, but there's not one verse written to us. Mm-hmm. All scriptures are written for us. Like this is us for us to like learn, to apply, to interpret. Like, but unless you're a first-century person or somebody who lived in David's time or Moses' time, it was never written to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can't just claim and have, like piggyback and say, "This is my promise. I'm doing this." Like, no. Like, is it written for you? Yes. Is it written to you? Eh, no. Like, we get it. We have to have this understanding about this. But it doesn't mean we can ignore it either. We can't just say, "I don't need scripture." You yeah. do need it. We have to learn how to apply it. This is why it's so crucial for us. But if you were to look at the, the whole of Scripture and all of Jesus' examples and ministries, what you'll see is Jesus having meals with wealthy people. Jesus embraces wealthy people. When we talk about he has meals with tax collectors, those people are more wealthy than all of us combined together. On the backs of, you know, exploitation and all that. But he talks about having, like, talking with prostitutes. Prostitutes had money too. Prostitutes had the wealth that, that came along with it as well. So Jesus would sit down with these kind of people and have conversations with them. Luke chapter 8, there's this great little verse that uh, Luke kind of includes here. And he gives us a list of things. I just want to walk us through this. Luke chapter 8, he says this. After the traveling from town to town, he's talking about Jesus. In the village, they went preaching and telling the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And then in verse 2, he says this. And also, some women who healed seven spirits out of the sickness, Mary Magdalene, seven demons came out of her, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many others who supported them with their wealth. So, it's easy to right over that and be like, well, oh, it's not a big deal. No, it's a huge deal. Yeah. Especially Herod. That Joanna, the wife of the uh, uh, Herod's business manager, he's taking the money from Herod to fund the ministry of Jesus. And this, this, Herod is the only person that Jesus ignores and will not talk to in all of Scripture. This is the same Herod that arrests John the Baptist. This is the same Herod that has him murdered because he doesn't like him. So then when Jesus is arrested on that Thursday night and Pilate sends him to Herod, this is the Herod that he goes to. What does Jesus do when he gets in the presence of Herod? Nothing. Not Not a word. He cannot stand Herod. Probably because he killed his cousin. But you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but also he's exploited. He's taken 80 to 85% of the, like, taxing the 80 to 80 to 80 to 5% of the people to build up his kingdom. He's caused all these wars. He's like, we don't have the time to get into all of the details here, but he like when Jesus talks about like, do you ever go to war without counting the cost? He's talking about Herod. Because Herod caused a war with the Nabataean Empire, empire that like destroyed the whole uh, kingdom of, of Herod. Here, there's a whole lot of history there. But for some reason, God ordained it that Herod's money should fund Jesus' ministry. Mm-hmm. Jesus embraces wealthy people. He embraces poor people. I don't think Jesus sees people as money like on, on a ranking system. Yeah. And he trained his disciples to do the same thing said, go do this. And so they do it. So you have these two polar opposites going on here. And all of a sudden now you have the church. We talked about this last week. Gentiles, and Jewish people, uh, who are polar opposites of each other, should always be avoiding each other according to the examples that we see. But they don't. They keep coming together. And this is what we see in the letter of Ephesians. That for some reason, all of a sudden, God is pulling people of polar opposites, of wealthy people, of poor people, of 80% of the people. Are poor and they live in these insular buildings. Where do the churches have church? They can't buy a building, and most of the places it's an illegal, like, act of worship. You're not going to the marketplace to do this, so they use the houses of the wealthy people. And so, like, this is like God is taking, like, God is challenging people to honor God with whatever you have. So you can imagine the conversation with Paul and Peter and all these other guys who would go out and start these, these ministries and these churches and say, hey, we just need a place to sit down, gather, pray for each other, have a meal together, and celebrate communion. And the people have space are like, dude, we can, you can use my house. Why not? And so they do this. And this is how the church starts. This is how the movement of Christ moves. The challenging point was, especially because you see this in Corinth, where the Sunday was the day that they had church, but Sunday was a work day for the Roman people. And so the wealthier people get gathered, they, they had all their food together, and they wouldn't wait on the poor people who are out working, because they're only, like, that $4 a day, that goes quickly. Right? Like, that's, you have to pay rent, you have to do all this other stuff. So they're working to survive. And if they're practicing the Sabbath, now you're down to Six. So, you're trying to figure out how to do this, right? <clears throat> and so, as they, after they got done working, they would show up to the church, to the house church. The problem is, all the wealthy people already ate the bread and drank all the wine. And Paul's like, man, you guys are not celebrating communion. This is like just drunken parties, right? Like, it's harshest words for this. But somehow, Paul, Jesus, is, like, is working through Paul, saying, pull all of these polar opposites together. Worshipping Jesus with people you, that are like you is nice. It's cute. It's a Sunday school little answer, right? But worshiping Jesus for people who are completely different than you? That's Christ-like. And I'd rather be Christ-like than nice. Yeah. You can tweet that. I don't know to do that. <laughs> but, alright, so, right, so that in mind, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 17. And I want us to just have this understanding of what Christ is actually trying to get Paul to get the Ephesians to, to work through and to look through. But here it is. He goes into this, and he's talking about this, like, how do we want people to worship me? Right? And so here's what he's going to talk about. Verse 17. Jesus came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away from him, and peace to those who are near. Basically, the Gentiles were far from Christ, the Jewish people who were near Christ. Well, let's keep reading, okay? Um, verse 18. Verse 18. For through Him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens of the apostles and the Prophets. With Christ Jesus Himself as the cornerstone in Him, the whole building is being put together. It grows into one holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Now, here's what we need to understand. This phrase, in Him is one of the biggest themes that you'll see in Paul's writings. For the biblical authors, salvation was not about a prayer that you prayed some time ago. Salvation was this lifestyle that you had walking in Christ. So let's walk through, what does it look like to be in Christ? And if you've been with us for a while, you've seen these totes before, we're going to pull the totes out because it's one of the greatest examples that I didn't come up with. Louis Guglio did, so I just stole it from him. You are walk but I saw this like 25 years ago, and I was like, this is genius, I'm going to totally do this. Okay, so, give me a second because I'm going to take all these totes out. Alright, now, here you and I are, this is us, okay? Galatians chapter 2 says this that if we are in Christ, here's what this means that we have now been crucified. According to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Jesus is in us. So, there's that one now. We have to talk about this being crucified. Now, does that mean physically you're dead? No, that means you're dying to yourself. There's three major enemies to us in walking with Christ. Evil of this world, human nature, and your own selfish desires. Alright? Do you have control over evil in your life? Not really. Satan's going to attack you since this isn't happening. Do you have control over your selfishness and your own sinful nature? Yeah. What Paul is saying is die to that. This is where Christ would also say, hey, crucify yourself and follow me. And all of a sudden the cross leaves him. And he's like, seriously, guys? What? Like, he did on purpose. Right? So when we talk about this, this is not about, well, I prayed this prayer when I was four years old, but I kept living my life the way I wanted to live. This is not like I grew up in church, going to church all the time, but then I would just do whatever I wanted to do outside of church. Like somehow this one hour was different, didn't impact my 167 hours outside of that one hour of church. Not that any of us would ever do that either. But when we say that we've been crucified, crucified with Christ, this is the waters of baptism, this is all this, um, one of the great sites that I wish I'd have gotten a better picture of, it. but there's a baptism in the, in the shape of a cross and the Negev. In the third century, this is how they started baptizing people, saying, "You're going in the shape of the cross," and that's how you got baptized. I don't know physically how that worked, but like it looked pretty sweet. So, Galatians chapter two: If you've been crucified with Christ, Christ now lives in you. According to Col- uh, Colossians chapter three, though, if Christ is in you, then all of a sudden now you're in Christ. So here we are. Here's you, Christ is in you, now you're all of a go up to Colossians chapter 3, you're now in Christ. Paul goes on later on in Colossians chapter 3 to say that it's not only that you're in Christ, but now you're in the Father. So, to be in Christ or in Him, according to the scriptures, means that somewhere in here you are, Christ is in you, you're in Christ, but now you're in the Father. So the question you have to ask yourself is this. When I say that I'm a Christian or I follow Jesus, does my life look more like Christ or does it look like I've just prayed and had Jesus as an ally? Mm-hmm. And by the way, when you go into the chaos of this world and into the evil of this world and you're like, I don't know what to do, I don't feel like I can do this, here's the beautiful thing. In order for Satan to actually get to you, he has to get to the Father. Does not have a great tracker, track, or, track or good there is to get into this, go against Satan, or sorry, go against Jesus, well, Satan doesn't have a great track record there. And if he gets through these two, then all of a sudden he has to fight Jesus again, because Jesus is in you. You're not alone. When you step into the chaos of this world, and you bring and you proclaim the gospel, you're not alone, you're not doing this on your own. You're in Christ, Christ is in you, and you're in the Father. So when you talk about being in Christ, or in Him, Does your life look more and more like Jesus on a daily basis, or does it look more just like yourself, and you say, well, I've done this, it's a good thing that I prayed this prayer, which is a good thing, but that's the starting point, not the end goal. And a lot of times we approach this as if it's the end goal. Um, Let's talk about the Jewish people being near God, and the Gentiles being far from God. Near God, but not in Christ still not in Christ. Far away from God, but not in Christ. Is still not in Christ. It's the prodigal son being put into a different place. The prodigal son goes away. He's far from the father. The oldest son is near. He's near the father. But he's still not in relationship with the father. And this is what Paul is talking about. You guys are like, the Gentiles are the prodigal son. You're far from from the father, but you're not in relationship with the father. The oldest son, you're here, like, like... You're still not in there. So Paul's driving this into them trying to figure this out. You've got to do this. And two vastly different people are being pulled together. If you Jews and Gentiles in this example, poor and wealthy people are being pulled together. And Paul is constantly just saying, be in Christ. And let's see what happens when we do this. When we we, two different people come together, where does Paul say that the Holy Spirit dwells? Right there. When two people become the temple, like, we're pulling these two different kinds of people, this is the temple. For the Jewish people, that would have been like, oh yeah, that's Jerusalem. And then before that, that's the tabernacle. The Hebrew word for tabernacle is dwelling. So when we're dwelling, like when, when he says, when Paul says we're dwelling here, like, or God's dwelling here, that's what he's talking about, it's not about tabernacle. For the Gentile people, they would have just envisioned the thousands and thousands of little small temples that if you wanted to have wealth, if you wanted to have rain, if you wanted to you'd just go to these temples and do this. But Paul is saying, no, no, we are the temple. This is the space where God's, where God's presence and space comes and meets with human space. And this is it. Like I said before, following, worshiping Jesus with people that are like you is nice and cute. There's nothing wrong with it. But finding people who are different than, than you and worshiping Jesus with those kind of people, it's a whole different ballgame. That's like going from black and white to technicolor. And this is what Jesus is trying to get through the whole the, the kingdom of God to look like. Is like you cannot look and just act the same. By the way, if you show up to a church where everybody acts the same, goes the same, and looks the same, you should feel called out of church. Mm-hmm. Just be aware of that, right? And you can't look at other people and say, "Mm, but they're not like me, they didn't vote like me, or whatever. They must be different than me, or whatever. C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says this, next to the blessed sacrament itself, meaning communion elements, your your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. (laughs) That neighbor, that person that you're looking at, bears the image of God. Different or like you doesn't matter they're still made in the image of God. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to come up and leave us in just some soft music while this next play, part takes place. But here's what we're going to do. I want you to take your communion elements and find somebody to share your story with. And tell your story of what God is doing in your life. How Jesus has shown up. And if you just look around and somebody's sitting by themselves, just go sit next to them. Um, But tell your story of what Jesus is doing in your life. And then I'll walk us through the communion elements here in a little bit. Alright?